Well, it's good to be back with you all this morning. Um, I had every intention and was prepared for and excited to be back with you all last week. Um, God had other plans for me, and so I enjoyed being with you guys all online, um, which was phenomenal, but I will get this thing right. There we go. Um, no, it was a f fantastic trip and time that we had in Tijuana. We're going to be telling you guys some more stories about that next week, so uh, you guys can hold off for now. I'll, we'll share a few stories, I'm sure, but it was a phenomenal trip. We're excited to be back. Good to see you there, Rob, man. Uh, but this morning, uh, we are going to be wrapping up our summer series where we've been looking at what it means to be set free. Uh, and throughout this series, we've been walking through the list of the seven deadly sins. And we've been doing this in order to expose these parts of our lives in order to bring times of refreshment, as our, as our uh, theme verse in Acts chapter 3 says. Not to, not to guilt us into a sense of shame about the things that we've done wrong, but to see that these are ways of living for Jesus, ways of living in life that are less than we could be living in the purpose in life that Jesus offers us in joy. So it's not for the purpose of shame, but for the purpose of finding greater freedom and, as we said, times of refreshment. We might turn from our sins and find life and freedom in Jesus. So as we, as we see over the last few weeks, the, the wrath or sloth or greed in our lives, to know that these are substitutes for what God can offer us. And today we're going to be looking at the most pervasive and deadly of the sins, pride. Now that's, that's not to say that envy or lust or gluttony or these other sins aren't real and destructive in our lives, but what is unique about pride is that it is the root of all of our sin. It's not at the root, it is the root of our sin. And what's more than that is pride keeps us from having a relationship with our Creator. Theologians and believers have for centuries claimed that pride is the worst of the sins and humanity's greatest downfall. Uh, John Stott, one of the theologians of the 20th century, said this, Pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. In uh, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about it like this. He puts it a little more harshly and says, Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. The utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. So why is it so deadly? What is pride? Well, the, de the definition in the dictionary defines pride as a group of lions. You'll get there eventually. <laughs> I laughed so hard at that while I was sitting in my office this past week. I'll get there eventually. Uh, but pride, aside from that, uh, is believing that we are the ones in control. Pride is claiming that we are God, that we have the own, our own ideas of morality, of what's right and wrong, that we are the masters of our own domain, that we know what's best for ourselves, that I am number one and no one can tell me what else. It's my way or the highway. And pride writes over the reality that God is God and we are not. It gets us to believe that we can be God that we're in control, but in reality, we are in control of so very little, let alone of creation, but our own selves. 
It's, uh, it's like the story of King Canute. He was a king who ruled about a thousand years ago over Denmark, Norway, and England. Uh, and historians said that he was a very wise ruler and that as he gained prominence within the kingdom, he became more famous. And as he was more famous, more people would try to flatter him and praise him to try and get their own sense of prominence in the world. And so one day the king was so tired of it that he ordered that his throne be carried to the beach where the tide was coming in. And so as his subjects did so, they all went down to the beachside and uh, King Canute sat in his throne and he commanded that the tide not come in. And so as he sat there, you can imagine what happened. The water continued to rise until his throne and feet were covered in water. And as he saw that, the king stood up and said, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and sea obey by eternal laws. The king, who was in control of so much of his own kingdom, even realized that he had so very little control over even the power that he was given. Because pride gets us to believe that we are the creator of our own lives, the sustainer of our own lives, that God is not. It's what, it's what the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, we read the story of the serpent telling Eve that she would be like God if she were to only listen to him and eat the fruit and go against what God had told her. And so why did Eve give in to it? Not because she was hungry, right? But because it would make her like God. Because of the power it would give her. Because the serpent said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, and that it would make her God. Pride is at the heart of every sin, and it's in each of our hearts too, right? Because sin is trying to make up our own way of living, our own rules, instead of living by the ones God set for us. And pride is running rampant in North America. Here in the West, we, uh, we believe that pride is a good thing, in fact, right? To be self-sufficient, to be independent, these are qualities that we look up to in other people at times. To be independent is even our highest goal in life, but we look up to those type of people who do it all on their own, right? We, we admire politicians who claim that they can be the saviors of our country, right? We see millions of children every single day post selfies and videos, not for the sake of getting to know each other and connection, but for the sake of vanity and self-worth. We even celebrate pride itself, right? We make it important to create our own identity that no one else can challenge or confront in this world. We idolize personal goals over communal good at times, and we try to make our name for ourselves by being different or the best or even the weirdest, all because we want to be the saviors of our own story. And pride gets us to think that we can be. It's the lie that says we can. That's why it's so dangerous. It blinds us to reality of who God is and who we are blinds us to the fact that we are not God, that our way of living life will only ever be destructive and hollow if lived apart from our maker. And that's the worst aspect of pride. Not just that it's blinding, but that it keeps us from our savior, that it keeps us from our maker. Proverbs 3.34 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You and I cannot know God from a place of pride. We cannot begin to have relationship with him in there because the proud person says they can do it all on their own. They have no need for a savior. 
God says that I am in control. I know what's best for you. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on thing and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see what is above you. And every single one of us have this root of pride within our hearts. And the more willing you are to admit it, the better off you'll be. So if, if pride is so deadly and pervasive, then what do we do about it? We have two choices, and, and humility is the key and the answer to both. Now, before we talk about those two choices we can take, I want to point out that it's important to notice that humble and humiliated come from the same root word. And we can sometimes get the idea of what that means wrongly, because to be humiliated is to lose a sense of dignity and respect, right? And I want to make it clear that to be humble is not to be ashamed. To be humble is not to feel shame about who you are, but to see ourselves as we really are, broken people and in need of a beautiful Savior. General Iroh once said it like this, Pride is not the opposite of shame, but its source. True humility is the only antidote to shame. Which brings us back to our two choices when it comes to dealing with our pride. We can either choose to humble ourselves or we can let God humble us, which is scary. All throughout the scripture, all throughout the Bible, we read stories of people who have had to have God humble them in order to get them to see that God is in control and that they are not. Right? If, you, if you look back throughout the Old Testament, they were ruled by kings at a certain point in their history. And if you read the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles, these stories, you, you get this theme that there were some good kings who ruled over the nation of Israel, but time and time again, and more often than not, they were evil and proud. And it doesn't often tell us, or most of the kings in the Old Testament didn't claim to be God, but they still set themselves up as God in their own way of ruling, right? They set up their own standard for what was right and wrong. Instead of living by the law that God had given them, telling them how to live well in the world, they created their own system and rules and chose their own standards for what was good and evil. So they ignored God, and they want to be their own God. Now, the worst king in all of Israel's history was a man named Ahab. Uh, and the book of 1 Kings said some pretty brutal things about him. I'll read you a couple sentences. Um, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any before him. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's pretty brutal. I hope that's not said of anyone like us. But what God does in response to Ahab's great pride is almost startling and jarring at first. In 1 Kings chapter 21, God sends Elijah the prophet to speak a judgment to King Ahab for all the evil that he's committed. And so he's told that he would suffer greatly, that all of his descendants, whether slave or free, would be cut off from his line. Not only that, but his own wife and all of those belonging to him would be eaten by dogs. That's pretty brutal. <laughs> That's harsh. But... In a miraculous turn of events, after hearing this judgment, King Ahab humbles himself. In verse 27, we read that when he heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted and went around meekly. That's important to notice here. Because Ahab, remember, was the most evil king to have walked the face of the earth, to have led, maybe not the face of the earth, but to have led the nation of Israel. And yet it wasn't because of his many 
sins, it was because of his great pride, because of his great ability to set himself up as God that he needed to be corrected. And so what did God do in response to Ahab's self-humiliation? In verse 29, God says this, Because Ahab has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. So first, why, why did God send Elijah to say these things to Ahab? Right? It's important to notice because it wasn't that God wanted Ahab to suffer just like he had made so many of his own people to suffer. It was because God wanted Ahab to repent, to turn from his way of living and to follow the way God set before him. To repent and to live and to find freedom. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read this. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. Whose good? Our good. That we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God disciplines us. He humbles us at points to get us to let go of our deadly and our blinding pride which keeps us from him. At times, God allows pain and allows suffering for this purpose in our lives. But remember whose good it is for. It's for our good. Now, this doesn't mean that every pain that we experience is God trying to work on the pride in our lives but rather God at times allows suffering in our lives to get us to see that we're not the ones in control. And so God has to humble us at times. He offers us a choice to respond or to continue in our own way that only leads to downfall. And in Acts chapter 12, we read of a story of someone who wasn't willing to humble themselves. Herod, he was giving a public address to a group of people that the text tells us he was quarreling with. So they weren't getting along, and so he goes to address this group of people and as he's speaking, he must have said something that made them very happy. Uh, but the people began to praise him, and they said, This is the voice of a God, not a man. And here's what the text says. But then immediately, verse 23 in chapter 12 of Acts, Because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Pardon me? Stories like this are jarring, right? especially when you look up a little bit more about the life of Herod. He was not a good man. Um, he put to death his mother-in-law. He killed two of his wives and three of his own sons. That's how bad this man was. And yet at the same time, it wasn't because of these things that he was put to death for. It's not mentioned in this story, right? All that's mentioned is that he didn't give glory to God and so he immediately died. Do you see what it is that truly keeps us from God? Jesus has made a way so that our sins, the evil things that we've done in this world, no longer keep us at a distance from him if we believe that Jesus has paid the price for our sins. And that first means recognizing that we are sinful, that we do have a debt that needs to be paid and that we cannot pay it ourselves. That we have done great evil, not just according to our own standards, but by the standards of the one who made this place. We have lived apart from the ways he's wanted us to live in this world. So, we throw ourselves into the loving arms of a God who sent his only son to pay the price of 
for our sins, to take the punishment that you and I deserve, to experience the separation that you and I should have with God, but we don't. So if we believe that Jesus has paid for the price for our sins, it's not our shortcomings that keep us from him. It's not our sins that keep him at a distance from us. In fact, our sin only draws Jesus closer to us. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That in the midst of of our brokenness, Jesus came to save us. It is in the very midst of our worst errors and the things that we have done in this life that we regret the most, the point of our greatest depravity that Jesus steps in and saves us and redeems us. And he continues to do this for us. So you see, it's not our sins that keep us at a distance from Jesus, knowing that he has paid the price for them. It is the mindset that we have no need of him. The mindset that we can pay the price on our own by doing enough good things. Or we can have the mindset that we live by our own morals and standards of what's right and wrong in this world. So, again, we have a choice set before us. That we can either choose to have God humble us or we can humble ourselves. In 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 7 says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Comes back there. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time and cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Humbling ourselves isn't easy because pride is blinding, right? The irony is that the more humble we think we are, the more we need to be humbled, right? The more we recognize our own sense of worth in this world, the more we need God to show us who he is and who we are in relation to him. So how do we then humble ourselves? What does that even look like under God's mighty hand that he might lift us up in due time? What does that mean? Well, first, and I kind of hinted at it, but we need to acknowledge that we need help. We can't do this on our own. Right? If pride keeps us from ever seeing our own faults and mistakes in this world, then the first step we can take in obedience is to recognize, to acknowledge that we do have faults. To come to Jesus recognizing that we're in need of help not, not playing down our mistakes, not justifying why we did what we did, but bringing ourselves before God in truth, casting all of our worries on him, knowing that he cares for us. And second, we obey him. We live in obedience to the things he speaks. And it seems backwards that we find freedom by living in obedience to another. It seems very awkward and wrong, right, in this world, but... That's why Jesus said, whoever wants to live his life, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. We find life and freedom when we live in obedience to Jesus and the things he's called us to and the way that we were created to live in this world. And it's ironic that sometimes the rules that God gives us, the things he teaches us, the um, ways he wants to lead us is freeing. Now, you're going to find it hard to obey Jesus if you don't know what he's spoken. So, I'm not sure if you've heard this in a sermon before, but reading your Bible is important in that way. Right? God has written to us truth. He's written to us promises that we can live by and take hold of. Good standards to live by in this world that he has created. So one small step we can take in obedience to Jesus to lay down our pride, to humble ourselves, is to read God's word. 
is to know and remind ourselves every day of what the truth is, not the truth that we make up here every single day, but the truth of who God is and who he's made us to be in this world. To spend time in his word, getting to know who he is and how we can live in obedience to him. So that's one way. Another way we can live in obedience to Jesus is by spending time in prayer and meditation. Again, incredible things for a sermon on a Sunday morning. Never heard it before. But having conversations with Jesus, spending time getting to know him in prayer. So when you're anxious, cast all your anxiety on him. When you're lonely, recognize and call out to him for his presence. If you're lost, ask for guidance. This is how we live in obedience to him, by sitting at his feet and living by his standards and not our own. And isn't that even an amazing aside on its own? The fact that our God doesn't say, you have to shape up and do all of these things before you can follow me. He says, in the midst of you being surrounded by your enemies, reach out to me and I will save you then. He doesn't say you need to be perfect first. He says, just try me. When you're going through something, reach out to me and see what happens. The more willing we are to submit ourselves to who Jesus is, the better off we'll be. And remember that when God is humbling you, in those moments when God inevitably has to, that he's allowing sickness or frailty or weakness or pain, remember that it is all done with love. It is all done with his most gentle love. When we are proud of our strength and ability, God might give us sickness and take away our ability helping us to see that we cannot work good on our own. It's not our ability and strength that makes us good. Right? If we're proud of our wealth, God might put us through times of scarcity to help us see that he has all we need, not what we can provide through on our own. And sometimes the, the treatment is painfully necessary. Right? Think, of, think of a finger that's been broken. If, if it's led to heal on its own without actually being fixed, it's going to heal back crooked and maimed. And do you know what the treatment is? The doctor has to re-break the finger. He has to set it right, and you have to go through the pain of that in order for it to be made straight again. I wish that God didn't need to do this in our lives, but what I want to point out is that even in God's correction, even these moments of discipline is not God being harsh or angry with us. It is done with the utmost gentleness and love and care. In, in Matthew chapter 23, we read this long list of woes that Jesus speaks to a specific group. He's talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, these, these were the people who thought they were blameless. These are the people who thought or who were the most proud. They were unwilling to listen to anything Jesus was speaking because... They didn't need him. They had no need of a savior. They were good enough on their own. And so Jesus lists these seven different woes, and they're pretty brutal. Uh, one of them, he even says, he calls them whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Again, I hope Jesus never has to say that about us. And at the end of all these judgments, it's this long chapter we read of, God, or of Jesus just speaking these judgments on this group of people, we kind of think that he's just angry and filled with wrath and he just wants them to suffer and hurt. But at the end, he, he says something very telling. And he finishes his judgment with these words. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. 
Jesus wraps up this harsh list of judgments and corrections, this list of disciplines, with a beautiful image of a mother hen lovingly collecting her chicks. Right? It's one of the few times that we see the maternal nature of Jesus and God written in Scripture. Jesus longs to gather us to himself, for us to run to him, looking to him for everything we need in the same way a baby chick runs to the mother looking for protection, looking for everything that it needs. So remember, when Jesus is disciplining us, when he's correcting us, and even in those moments of pain and the harshness of it, that he's taking the most gentle and loving course of actions with us. It is all done for our own betterment, betterment to give up the counterfeit control that we think we have in this world. So even in the midst of God's loving discipline, the pains that he puts our way can be faced with strength and joy. They can be faced with hope, knowing that he is working a good in us that is far better than the evil of pain. Consider it pure joy, my friends, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We are called to persevere with joy, whenever we face trials of any kinds, because we know that the testing of our faith produces pure perseverance, that it leads us to a place where we will lack no thing. So when God allows suffering in our lives, when he leads us to places of discipline, when he allows pains in our life that we can't make sense of, when it seems like life just doesn't seem to be working, we can know and trust that he is working good that his love for us is so great that it's not willing to let us continue going down the same bad paths that we do. And all of this is done in absolute love for our betterment. We are dearly loved children of a father who overcomes any obstacle that comes between us and him. And we can live in the fullness of joy and hope because of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great hope that we have in you. Father, we, we thank you that even, even as we look to Jesus on the cross, we thank you that you've made a way for us to be in relationship, that we're no longer separated by you from our or by our mistakes, God, by the evils that we have done in this world, but that you accept us as we repent, as we come to you, Father. I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves. Father, it's hard work, and I pray that you would help us to see those places of our lives that we need to humble ourselves. But God, even in the midst of that, you are with us. Help us to have a fullness of joy and hope, knowing that even the pains we face, God, are your good working out in our lives. So thank you, Father, for the joy and the fullness of hope that we can have in you because of what you've done on the cross. In your name, Jesus. Amen.